0: Chapter 8 of Henry D. Thoreau. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Henry D. Thoreau by Benjamin Franklin Sanborn. Chapter 8 The Walden Hermitage. It is by his two years' encampment on the shore of a small lake in the Walden Woods, a mile south of Concord village, that Thoreau is best known to the world and the book which relates how he lived and what he saw there is still, as it always was, the most popular of his writings. Like all his books, it contains much that might as well have been written on any other subject, but it also describes charmingly the scenes and events of his sylvan life, his days and nights with nature. He spent two years and a half in this retreat, though often coming forth from it. The localities of Concord which Thoreau immortalized were chiefly those in the neighborhood of some lake or stream, though it would be hard to find in that well-watered town, especially in springtime, any place which is not neighbor either to the 9 times circling river Muscatiquid to the swifter Assabet, that like an arrow clear through Troy Rennes' eye downward to the sea, to Walden or White Pond, to Bateman's Pond, to the Millbrook, the Sanguinetto, the Nutmeadow, or the Second Division brook, all these waters and more, are renowned again and again in Thoreau's books. Like Icarus, the ancient high-flyer, he tried his fortune upon many a river, fjord, streamlet, and broad sea, where still the shore his brave attempt resounds. He gave beauty and dignity to obscure places by his mention of them, and it is curious that the neighborhood of Walden, now the most romantic and poetical region of Concord, associated in every mind with this tender lover of nature and his worship of her, was anciently a place of dark repute, the home of pariahs and lawless characters, such as fringed the sober garment of many a New England village in Puritanic times. Close by Walden is Brister's Hill, where in the early days of emancipation in Massachusetts the newly freed slaves of Concord magnates took up their abode, the wrathful kings on Cairns apart, as Ossian says. Here dwelt Cato Ingram, freedman of Squire Duncan Ingram, who, when yet a slave in his master's backyard on the day of Concord fight, was brought to a halt by the fierce Major Pitcairn, then something the worse for Squire Ingram's wine, in order to lay down his arms and disperse, as the rebels at Lexington had been six hours earlier. Here also abode Zilpha, a black Circe who spun linen and made the Walden woods resound with her shrill singing, de ways in accessos ubi solus filia lucos, assiduo resonat cantu testisque superbus, Urit odoratum nocturna in lumina sedrum arguta tenues pericurans pectin telus but some paroled english prisoners in the war of eighteen twelve burnt down her proud abode with its imprisoned cat and dog and hens while zilpha was absent down the road towards the village from cato's farm and zilpha's musical loom and wheel lived brister freeman who gave his name to the hill Scipio Brister, a handy negro, once the slave of Squire Cummings, but long since emancipated, and in Thoreau's boyhood set free again by death and buried in an old Lincoln graveyard near the ancestor of President Garfield, but still nearer the unmarked graves of British grenadiers who fell in the retreat from Concord. With this Scipio Africanus, Brister Libertinus, in the edge of the Walden woods, dwelt Fenda, his hospitable wife, who told fortunes, yet pleasantly large, round, and black, such a dusky orb as never rose on Concord before or since, says Thoreau. Such was the African colony on the south side of Concord village among the woods, while on the northern edge of the village, along the great meadows, there dwelt another colony, headed by Caesar Robbins, whose descendants still flit about the town. Older than all was the illustrious Guinea Negro John Jack, once a slave on the farm which is now the glebe of the Old Manse, but who purchased his freedom about the time the Old Manse was built in 1765-66. to He survives in his quaint epitaph, written by Daniel Bliss, the young Tory brother of the first mistress of the manse, Mrs. William Emerson, grandmother of Emerson, the poet. God wills us free, man wills us slaves, I will as God wills, God's will be done. Here lies the body of John Jack, a native of Africa, who died March 1773, aged about sixty years. Though born in a land of slavery, he was born free. Though he lived in a land of liberty, he lived a slave. Till by his honest, though stolen, labours, he acquired the source of slavery which gave him his freedom. Though not long before death, the grand tyrant gave him his final emancipation, and put him on a footing with kings. Though a slave to vice, he practised those virtues without which kings are but slaves. This epitaph and the anecdote already given concerning Caesar Robbins may illustrate the humanity and humor with which the freedmen of Concord were regarded, while an adventure of Scipio Brister's in his early days of freedom may show the mixture of savage fun and contempt that also followed them and which some of their conduct may have deserved. The village drover and butcher once had a ferocious bull to kill, and when he had succeeded with some difficulty in driving him into his slaughterhouse on the Walden Road, nobody was willing to go in and kill him. Just then Brister Freeman, from his hill near Walden, came along the road and was slyly invited by the butcher to go into the slaughterhouse for an axe, being told that when he brought it he should have a job to do. The unsuspecting Freedman opened the door and walked in. It was shut behind him, and he found the bull drawn up in a line of battle before him. After some pursuit and retreat in the narrow arena, Brister spied the axe he wanted and began attacking his pursuer, giving him a blow here or there as he had opportunity. His employers outside watched the bull fight through a hole in the building and cheered on the matador with shouts and laughter at length by a fortunate stroke the african conquered the bull fell and his slayer threw down the axe and rushed forth unhurt but his tormentors declared he was no longer the dim sombre negro he went in but literally white with terror and what was once his wool straightened out and standing erect on his head without waiting to be identified or to receive pay for his work brister affrighted and wrathful withdrew to the wooded hill and to the companionship of his fortune-telling Fenda, who had not foreseen the hazard of her spouse. It was along the same road and down this hill, passing by the town, poor farm, and poor house, the last retreat of these straggling soldiers of fortune, that Thoreau went toward the village jail from his hermitage that day in 1846, when the town constable carried him off from the shoemakers to whose shop he had gone to get a cobbled shoe, his roommate in jail for the single night he slept there was introduced to him by the jailer, Mr. Staples, a real name, as a first-rate fellow and a clever man, and on being asked by Thoreau why he was in prison replied, why they accuse me of burning a barn, but I never did it. As near as Thoreau could make out, he had gone to bed in a barn when drunk, and smoked his pipe there. Such were the former denizens of the Walden Woods votaries of bacchus and apollo and extremely liable to take fire upon small occasion like giordano bruno's sonneteer who addressing the arabian phoenix says "To bruci nund et io in ogni loco io da cupido hai tu da febo il foco it seems by the letter of margaret fuller in eighteen forty one cited in chapter six that thoreau had for years meditated a withdrawal to a solitary life the retreat he then had in view was doubtless the hollowell farm a place as he says of complete retirement being about two miles from the village half a mile from the nearest neighbor and separated from the highway by a broad field the house stood apart from the road to nine acre corner fronting the Muscattaquid on a green hillside and was first seen by Thoreau as a boy in his earliest voyages up the river to Fairhaven Bay concealed behind a dense grove of red maples through which I heard the house dog bark. This place Thoreau once bought but released it to the owner whose wife refused to sign the deed of sale. In his Walden venture he was a squatter using for his house lot a woodland of Mr. Emerson's, who, for the sake of his walks and his wood-fire, had bought land on both sides of Walden Pond. How early Thoreau formed his plan of retiring to a hut among these woods I have not learned, but in a letter written to him March 5, 1845, by his friend Channing, a passage occurs concerning it, and it was in the latter part of the same month that Thoreau borrowed Mr. Alcott's axe and went to across the fields to cut the timber for his cabin channing writes i see nothing for you in this earth but that field which i once christened briars go out upon that build yourself a hut and there begin the grand process of devouring yourself alive i see no alternative no other hope for you eat yourself up you will eat nobody else nor anything else concord is just as good a place as any other "'There are indeed more people in the streets of that village "'than in the streets of this,' he was writing from the Tribune office in New York. "'This is a singularly muddy town, muddy, solitary, and silent. "'I saw Tufel drunk a few days since. "'He said a few words to me about you,' says he. "'That fellow Thoreau might be something if he would only take a journey "'through the everlasting no, thence for the North Pole. "'By gee,' said the old clothes-bag warming up, I should like to take that fellow out into the everlasting no, and explode him like a bombshell. He would make a loud report. It would be fun to see him pick himself up. He needs the bloomin' flower business. That would be his salvation. He is too dry, too composed, too chalky, too concrete. Does that execrable compound of sawdust and stagnation L still prose about nothing, and that nutmeg greater of a Z yet shriek about nothing? Does anybody still think of coming to Concord to live? I mean new people? If they do, let them beware of you philosophers. Of course, this imaginary twofold drach like Carlyle's, was the satirical man in the writer himself, suggesting the humorous and contradictory side of things, and glancing at the coolness of Thoreau, which his friends sometimes found provoking. In his own person, Channing adds, I should be pleased to hear from Kamchatka occasionally. My last devices from the of bear are getting stale. In addition to this, I find that my corresponding members at Van Diemen's Land have wandered into limbo. I hear occasionally from the world. Everything seems to be promising in that quarter. Business is flourishing and the people are in good spirits. I feel convinced that the earth has less claims to our regard than formerly. These mild winters deserve severe censure. But I am well aware that the earth will talk about the necessity of routine, taxes, etc. On the whole, it is best not to complain without necessity. It is well to read this shrewd humor, uttered in the opposite sense from Thoreau's paradoxical wit in his Walden, as an introduction or motto to that book. For Thoreau has been falsely judged from the wit and the paradox of Walden as if he were a hater of men or foolishly desired all mankind to retire to the woods as channing said soon after his friend's death the fact that our author lived for a while alone in a shanty near a pond and named one of his books after the place where it stood has led some to say he was a barbarian or a misanthrope it was a writing case here in this wooden inkstand he wrote a good part of his famous walden and this solitary woodland pool was more to his muse than all oceans of the planet by the force of imagination some have fancied because he moved to walden he left his family he bivouacked there and really lived at home where he went every day this last is not literally true, for he was sometimes secluded in his hut for days together, but he remained as social at Walden as he had been while an inmate of Mr. Emerson's family in 1841-43, to or again in 1847-48, after giving up his hermitage he in fact as he says himself went to the woods because he wished to live deliberately to front only the essential facts of life and see if he could not learn what it had to teach and not when he came to die discover that he had not lived in another place he says he went to walden to transact some private business and this he did to good purpose he edited there his week some portions of which had appeared in the dial from eighteen forty to eighteen forty four but which was not published as a volume until 1849, although he had made many attempts to issue it earlier. It was at Walden also that he wrote his essay on Carlyle, which was first published in Graham's magazine at Philadelphia in 1847 through the good offices of Horace Greeley, of which we shall hear more in the next chapter. Thoreau's hermit life was not then merely a protest against the luxury and the restraints of society, nor yet an austere discipline such as monks and saints have imposed upon themselves for their soul's good. My purpose in going to Walden was not to live cheaply nor to live dearly there, but to transact some private business with the fewest obstacles. He lived a life of labor and study in his hut. Emerson says as soon as he had exhausted the advantages of that solitude, he abandoned it he had edited his first book there had satisfied himself that he was fit to be an author and had passed his first examinations then he graduated from that gymnasium as another young student might from the medical college or the polytechnic school i left the woods for as good a reason as i went there His abandoned hut was then taken by a Scotch gardener, Hugh Whelan by name, who moved it some rods away to the midst of Thoreau's bean field and made it his cottage for a few years. Then it was bought by a farmer who put it on wheels and carried it three miles northward toward the entry of the Estabrook farm on the old Carlisle Road, where it stood till after Thoreau's death, a shelter for corn and beans and a favorite haunt of squirrels and blue jays. The woodcut representing the hermitage in the first edition of Walden is from a sketch made by Sophia Thoreau and is more exact than that given in Page's Life of Thoreau, but in neither picture are the trees accurately drawn. On the spot where Thoreau lived at Walden there is now a cairn of stones yearly visited by hundreds and growing in height as each friend of his muse adds a stone from the shore of the fair water he loved so well. Beat with thy paddle on the boat midway the lake, The wood repeats the ordered blow, The echoing note is ended in thy ear, Yet it retreats, conceal time's possibilities. And in this man the nature lies of wood so green, And lake so sheen, and hermages edge between. And I may tell you that the man was good, Never did his neighbor harm, Sweet was it where he stood, sunny and warm. Like the seat beneath a pine That winter suns have cleared away, with their yellow tine, red cushioned and tasseled with the day. The events and thoughts of Thoreau's life at Walden may be read in his book of that name. As a protest against society, that life was ineffectual, as the communities at Brook Farm and Fruitlands had proved to be, and as the Fourierite phalasteries in which Horace Greeley interested himself were destined to be. In one sense, all these were failures, but in Thoreau's case the failure was slight, the discipline and experience gained were invaluable. He never regretted it. And the Walden episode in his career has made him better known than anything else. End of chapter eight.